Thanks. Good morning. Nothing like a good epic song and a minor key to get you amped for preaching. I don't know about you, but I love the, 20, the TV show 24. I've made it through seven of its eight seasons so far and plan to finish off the last one in the near future. For those of you who aren't familiar, the show 24 is a serialized drama in which each season chronicles one impossibly eventful day for its lead character, Jack Bauer. The events of the show occur in real time, which makes you feel the tension when, for example, a terrorist says that the president has to sign his immunity agreement in the next 10 minutes or dirty bombs will explode in densely populated areas across the United States. That's intense. I enjoy all of the adrenaline-pumping action that brings you into the ups and downs of the drama in real time over the course of the day. As I've been studying our passage for this week, I've come to see Good Friday as an almost inconceivable day, filled with as much drama and action as a season of 24. As you may know, the Jewish day runs from sunset to sunset rather than midnight to midnight. So for Jesus and his disciples... Friday began with all of them congregating in a room and eating the Passover supper, where Jesus declared that his own blood would be spilled so that our sins could be forgiven. But by the time Friday ended, Jesus' blood had been spilled, and his lifeless body had been laid to rest in a nearby tomb. The restrictions of a Sunday morning sermon mean that it's going to take us five weeks to cover what happened to Jesus in just one horrific day. As we heard from Pastor Jason last Sunday, after eating the Last Supper with his disciples and stopping by the Mount of Olives, Jesus brought his disciples to a nearby garden called in Gethsemane, just to the east of Jerusalem. Once there, Jesus fell on his face and prayed to his Father as he agonized over what lay ahead. Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 26. As we enter back into the action, It's now probably just past midnight, and the sleepy disciples have been told to get up, for the betrayer has arrived. We're going to start off this morning by relaying the events as they unfold in the text over the course of three scenes. Then we're going to look at what God wants us to take from the passage, and then we're going to take some time to consider how the passage applies to us. But before we get started, let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word what it meant to suffer for the sins of humankind. May we know Christ's sufferings. May we know his love for us. And may we see how much it took of Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. Teach us today and convict us of sin in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Scene one, Gethsemane. Friday, just after midnight. We pick up the story at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus was mid-sentence telling his disciples that his betrayer was on his way when a large posse of well-armed men showed up at the scene. The men were a dispatch of police sent by the religious authorities to arrest Jesus, probably on the charge of blasphemy. At the center of the posse stood Judas, whom Matthew identifies as one of the twelve, not because it's new information to us, 
but because he wants to impress upon us the horror of the scene. Judas Iscariot, who had been following Jesus as his disciple for years, had come to betray his master. Earlier in chapter 26, we saw Judas selling out Jesus to Caiaphas and the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And the text says that from then on, he was looking for his opportunity to hand Jesus over. And here in Gethsemane, in the wee hours of the morning, he gets his chance. And the crazy thing is, according to John 6.64, Jesus knew this was going to happen all along, even when he first called Judas to be his disciple. Needless to say, Jesus isn't caught off guard here. Let's continue. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus needed to give the posse a sign to indicate who they should arrest in the dim moonlight. And he chose to use a kiss. A kiss was a common greeting of friendship, which makes, Jesus, which makes Judas seem all the more traitorous. It's a dastardly deed. Three years he has followed this righteous teacher and miracle worker. And this is how Judas repays him, with a kiss. Steeped in hypocrisy, Judas outwardly offers Jesus a warm greeting. But this is one of those conversations where the words don't express what's really happening. All night, Jesus and Judas have known what's going to happen. As they were eating the Passover together, Jesus told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Matthew says the disciples were very sorrowful at the idea and proceeded in turn to inquire of Jesus whether it was they who would betray him. And Judas played right along with the rest of them. Is it I, Rabbi? But they both knew it was. It was only a matter of hours. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus addresses Judas as friend, a common open-hearted greeting among companions in that day, but not necessarily an intimate term. Let's get on with it, Jesus says. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. And after praying in the garden, he's convinced that this was the next step in the path of suffering that his father had called him to. He responds with perfect poise. The posse now lay their hands on Jesus and arrest him. The sight of these men seizing Jesus was simply too much for Peter. In verse 51, we read, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. We know from John's account of the scene that it was Peter who cut off the ear of this servant, who was named Malchus. The Bible casts Peter as a man who is quick to believe and quick to act, sometimes even before thinking things through. It was Peter who saw Jesus walking on water, and then asked if he could join him, believing that if Jesus could do it, that he could empower Peter to do it too. It was Peter who correctly identified Jesus was the Christ, the first of the disciples to figure it out. But Peter was also the one who rebuked Jesus when Jesus told him that he would need to suffer many things and be killed. Peter is faithful, 
but sometimes he speaks and acts before he thinks. Here in our passage, in a display of poor swordsmanship and even poorer judgment, Peter has the idea to step up and defend the king of kings. It's possible that Peter may have misconstrued this as a test of his loyalty to Jesus. It's also possible he thought he was giving the first blow in the great eschatological battle at the end of the age. But you know what I think? I think he's just afraid. Afraid of what was happening to his rabbi and afraid that he might be next. When we're as afraid as Peter is, we too can respond more with our instincts than our reason. When I tell my wife that I'm going to tickle her, she drops to the floor and assumes the fetal position. Of course, that makes it even easier to tickle her, but she still does it. Sometimes we just act and leave the thinking for later. Now, for those of you who are feeling bad for Malchus, I should tell you that Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus touched his ear and it was healed. And I'm sure he got an amazing story for all his trouble. Matthew doesn't mention the healing because he puts his focus elsewhere. We can see Matthew's emphasis in verses 52 to 54. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? With this passage, Matthew focuses upon the sovereignty of Jesus, even as he's letting himself be arrested. A legion was made up of 6,000 soldiers, so 72,000 heavenly angels would have been able to do the trick. Jesus doesn't need Peter's help to get things under control. And Peter's idea was, wasn't exactly a good idea in its own right. In verse 52, Jesus, Jesus reflects on the fact that those who are struck tend to fight back. And as a result, the one who strikes can find himself at the end of a sword. Instead of taking a play from Peter's playbook, Jesus says that he's ready to suffer because this is what Scripture had prophesied of him. Jesus doesn't reference any specific verses here with the Old Testament, but both here and in verse 56, he alludes to a handful of passages from the Old Testament that point forward to a suffering servant, the most prominent of which is Isaiah chapter 53. What we see then is that Jesus lets himself be taken not because of his impotence, but because of his obedience. Jesus is convinced that this is the Father's will, and he will use his incomparable power to submit to the party that has come to arrest him. Jesus now moves to address the great crowd of armed men around him. In verse 55, he says, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus points out that they're packing a lot of heat to arrest an unarmed teacher. It's as if they take him to be a revolutionary. Not only that, they've decided to come at night. But why should they bother to do that when Jesus has been there for the taking day after day in the temple? Well, Jesus knows the answer. Justice isn't really their concern. According to Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, the religious authorities had been looking for a way to bump him off. But they knew they couldn't do it unless it was in secret. Otherwise, the crowds would be outraged. 
So with the help of Judas, this was their opportunity to get rid of him. Our scene ends with one final tragic sentence. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. It's one thing for the imposter Judas to betray Jesus, but his own friends and followers who had left their livelihoods to spend the last few days with him, not only days but years, how could they just abandon him like that? In the heat of the battle, they desert him. Imagine what Jesus saw. John running off. James at a dead sprint. Peter running for his life. Peter. Wasn't Peter the one who earlier that night had insisted, even if all the disciples fall away, Jesus, I will never fall away? Yeah, that's Peter. You see, Peter wasn't only a faithful disciple of Jesus. He also had high expectations of himself. Later that night, he had made Jesus another promise. Even if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Again, high expectations. And as a faithful disciple, Peter had something to brag about. He could tell the other disciples what it was like when he and Jesus walked on water. He could try to describe in words the indescribable glory of Jesus as it shone around him when Jesus was transfigured before his eyes. Jesus himself had given him the, had given him the name Peter, which means rock, and said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Peter was no stranger to a bit of spiritual pride, but there he goes, running for his life. Scene two. The residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. Friday, roughly 2 a.m. In this scene, we'll see Jesus on trial before the Jewish authorities. Jesus is tried in two stages. He first has a trial before the Jewish authorities, and then he will have one before the Roman authorities. This Sunday, we're going to watch his religious trial unfold. Then next Sunday, Ryan Harding is going to walk us through his second trial. Got it? All right, let's go. Verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Still in custody, Jesus is led to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. He enters a room filled with the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. There were somewhere between 23 and 71 members of the Sanhedrin present there that night. So we should picture Jesus in a large room where he's vastly outnumbered by these religious authorities who had been plotting together to find a way to bring him in. But before we continue with the trial itself, the camera cuts us back to Peter. Verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Peter keeps his distance as he approaches the residence. He follows Jesus as far as the courtyard, but he decides to keep it low profile. So he takes a seat in the central courtyard among the guards to see what would happen to his rabbi. Though he's too scared to go into the residence and show his support, he's still concerned. As the camera pans back inside, we see Jesus all alone facing a kangaroo court. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus 
that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. These religious leaders didn't care what the facts were. They just wanted a condemnation. Many key people came forward with testimony, but they couldn't find anyone who could help them make their case against Jesus. But the verse continues. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now this was something they could work with. It's important that there are two witnesses who have come forward because Deuteronomy 17.6 stipulates that no one could be executed on the testimony of only one. These witnesses claim that this Jesus guy said he can destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Do we have any record of Jesus actually saying that? Well, almost. John 2.19-21 states this. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Our two witnesses are apparently giving an overly literal interpretation of this statement, which, according to John, was actually a reference to Jesus' body, not the temple. Nevertheless, Jesus had overturned the tables of money changers in the temple, so this testimony did have some plausibility to it. And because a threat to the temple was a threat to the most precious and sacred thing in Israel's community life, capital punishment was now on the table. But Caiaphas first asked Jesus to respond to the accusations of these witnesses. Verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was highly unusual for the president of any assembly to stand up to speak in Jesus' day. So you can almost feel the mixture of anger and excitement in the high priest's voice as he calls Jesus to respond. At first, Jesus stays silent, making no defense for himself. This is another allusion to the fact that Jesus is fulfilling the role of the prophesied suffering servant. Isaiah 53.7 says of the servant, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Most of us would do all we can to defend ourselves in the face of false accusations. But Jesus was convinced that even this false testimony was operating under his Father's will and in fulfillment of Scripture. So there was no need to try to get out of it. Now Caiaphas, with a note of added frustration, demands a response from Jesus by placing him under oath with the divine name. This type of oath wouldn't allow Jesus to keep silent any longer. Caiaphas demands, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. His statement flows naturally from the accusation about the temple, since the Messiah was expected to restore or even rebuild the temple. His statement forces Jesus' hand. Jesus had three options. He could once again refuse to answer, 
but that would mean breaking a legally imposed oath. He could deny it, which would mean that the immediate crisis is over, but so is his influence. Or he could affirm it. And that's what he does, with a bit of qualification. You have said so. This amounts to, yes, but not in the way you mean. The qualification was necessary because Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, but not in the way that these religious authorities understood it. The common expectation around Jerusalem was that the Messiah, who was also sometimes called the lowercase s, Son of God, would be descended from great King David and with God's help would overturn Roman rule with his military might and establish the Messianic kingdom. But the actual Messiah, Jesus, was both less and more than they expected. He was less than they expected because God's plan was that Jesus would be both messianic king and God's suffering servant. The king would be God's servant by suffering for his subjects. These roles, messianic king and suffering servant, will come closer and closer together in the person of Jesus as we approach his crucifixion on Good Friday. But the real Messiah Jesus also exceeded their expectations. That's what Jesus alludes to when he tells them in verse 64, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The word power here is a Jewish title for God. So Jesus is saying that he will reign from heaven at God's right hand, the place of judgment and honor and fulfillment of Psalm 110. And not only that, he says he's also the Son of Man, described in Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, the Son of Man was given glory from the Ancient of Days and was granted an everlasting dominion over an indestructible kingdom in which all peoples would serve him. So Jesus' response is also a veiled threat. You may think you have authority over my fate, but I will sit at the Father's right hand of judgment and glory, and it is I who will be your judge. Needless to say, this didn't go over very well. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. The prosecution rests. The blasphemer has blasphemed right before their eyes. Caiaphas calls for a judgment. And the Sanhedrin says he deserves death. Yet the council didn't have the authority to have Jesus executed, so he would still need to go before the Roman governor, Pilate. Verse 67 continues. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ! Who is it that struck you? That's Jesus they're punching. It's unclear whether it was the guards or the judges who were doing these things to him. But in either case, it was despicable. Luke's account notes that Jesus was blindfolded before they slapped him, since it was thought that the Messiah would be able to recognize people when blindfolded. So this scene is not just a personal insult. It's their vigorous repudiation of Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah. Here again, the suffering servant does not open his mouth on the way to his slaughter. Scene three, the central courtyard of Caiaphas' home, Friday, around 3 a.m. The camera now returns to Peter, 
who is seated in the courtyard as Jesus is being questioned. At least part of this scene is contemporaneous with the previous scene. And based on the accounts of the other gospel writers, we know that this third scene actually takes place over the course of at least an hour, probably more like two hours. We enter into the action in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. The Gospels of Mark and John note that Peter was warming himself by a fire in the cool night air. The light of the fire flickered upon Peter's face, a face that was familiar to this servant girl. She had seen him with Jesus as he had gone about his public ministry in Jerusalem. Though she was probably a slave herself, the girl's words were likely marked by a fair amount of cultural disdain for Peter. She accused him of being with Jesus, the Galilean. This girl may have been a slave, but at least she was a Jerusalemite. After all, Jerusalem was the focal point of Israel's cultural and religious life. But this Jesus fellow was from the backwater of Galilee. He was a regular country bumpkin. Verse 70 says, Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter's response was actually a standard way of denying an accusation in Jewish legal texts. So he's not pretending to be as clueless as it might seem. But why the denial? Once again, Peter was afraid. There he was, sitting anonymously in the cloud, in the crowd, until this servant girl comes up and points him out, recognizing him. This girl informs the bystanders around Peter that he was with Jesus of Nazareth. We see this in verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the, to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After slipping out of the huddle around the fire and finding a place in a darker area near the gate, a different girl now recognizes Peter. And, having denied the claim once already, Peter ups the ante and denies it under oath. He digs a little deeper in his hole, moving from a little lie to perjuring himself. I do not know the man. But soon the bystanders start drawing their own conclusions. In verse 73 we read, After a little while the bystanders come, came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Peter's Galilean twang betrays the fact that he's from Galilee. And if he's from Galilee, then he must be with Jesus. Okay, the logic wasn't exactly airtight, but it's good enough for them. In response, Peter digs his hole even deeper. Not only does he lie and perjure himself under oath, he starts invoking curses in an effort to get them off of his back. These may have been curses upon himself that would take effect if he were lying, but it's also possible that these were curses upon Jesus himself. Of all people, Peter may very well have cursed his beloved rabbi in order to save his own skin. But then immediately it comes. <laughs> 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The rooster crow jars Peter, taking him out of his immediate effort to avoid arrest and bringing him back to earlier that night when he and Jesus were talking on the Mount of Olives. It was then that Jesus said Peter would deny him three times. And in response, Peter proclaimed, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And now it's as if his self-righteousness has shattered to pieces. Peter has done what only hours earlier he had thought was unthinkable. Jesus was right. Peter would deny him. He would disown him. The utter guilt and shame was simply too much to bear. He went away from the bystanders, leaving the courtyard, and wept bitterly. I'm sure many of you can resonate with what Peter's feeling here. In the midst of an intense situation, we can sometimes feel justified in doing whatever it takes to get what we want. We sometimes compromise under fire. Our compromises may not be as climactic as cursing Jesus, and they aren't recorded in the Bible for all to see. But all of us have failed under pressure. I worked at a law firm for a couple of years between undergrad and seminary. And in my first few months there, every Monday morning provided an opportunity to either stand firm or compromise under pressure. I'm sure most of you experienced walking into the office on Monday and chit-chatting with your non-Christian co-workers about your weekend. I can't tell you how many times I was asked what I did over the weekend, and the first thing that came to my mind was I went to church, then I went to small group. But even though that was the first thing that popped up, I wouldn't want to say that because I was afraid that I would be stereotyped as a Christian fundamentalist and would lose some of the professional respectability that I was trying so hard to accomplish. So instead, I would just give some bland response that I didn't do anything interesting, just the humdrum of errands and watching the game. But as soon as I would say this, I knew that I was intentionally avoiding the most important and valuable thing in my weekend, because I was embarrassed by my faith and the personal consequences that would come to me if my coworkers knew what I really did over the weekend. I know the pressure of my situation pales in comparison to Peter's situation. But I feel like I can see this scene through Peter's eyes and remember that I, too, have disowned Christ before others. Our passage this morning tells the tale of two men who totally failed their rabbi. But the biggest difference here between Judas and Peter is not how grievous their sin was. Both of them clearly blew it. But the condition of their heart Judas's actions were calculated, callous, and cold-hearted. The Gospels record that Judas did eventually feel some remorse, but we have no indication that Judas ever repented. In this scene, Peter's tears reveal a tender-hearted disciple who found himself in a difficult situation and compromised. Peter's bitter weeping certainly flowed from remorse of his own, but these were also the tears of a repentant heart. Peter doesn't make any more appearances in Matthew's gospel. But Luke's gospel records that by Easter Sunday, Peter was again gathered together with the rest of Jesus' disciples. And when news came of Jesus' resurrection, it was Peter who sent out on a dead sprint to the tomb. 
He couldn't wait to see his Savior again and have their relationship restored. Sometime after this, Peter was out fishing with some of the disciples. And when he heard that Jesus was out on the shore, he stripped off his clothes, dove in, and swam to Jesus as fast as he could. These are snapshots of the repentant heart, which runs back to Jesus at the first opportunity. Having a guy like Peter in the Bible should inspire us. Peter's story doesn't end with his threefold denial. It ends with Jesus restoring him and God appointing him as his apostle to the Jews. And the influence of Peter's work and example continues to this very day. So what does God want to teach us from his word this morning? He wants us to see that Jesus submitted himself willingly and powerfully to the Father's will on his path of suffering. He wants us to know that all of the events of Good Friday happened while Jesus was in total control of the situation. And he wants to show you that Jesus suffered both physically and relationally as he prepared to die as a wrongfully convicted criminal so that your sins could be forgiven. Our, press, our passage impresses on our minds the horrific fact that Jesus' closest disciples abandoned him, betrayed him, and disowned him. The pain of their actions far outweighed the physical and emotional pain inflicted by the judges and guards at his trial. Jesus walked the path of suffering all alone. As a result, in Jesus Christ, you have a high priest who can empathize with you if you've been disowned by someone who was once your friend, cheated by someone you once trusted, or abandoned by someone you love. Jesus knows your pain. As you talk to him in prayer, you can be totally honest with him. And you can know that he has deep empathy for what you're going through. If you've been deeply hurt by another person, I would encourage you this morning to share your pain with Jesus. He's ready to listen. Our passage also teaches us about our own righteousness. Everyone in our story, indeed every one of us and everyone who has ever lived, is unrighteous, except for Jesus. What distinguished unrighteous Judas from unrighteous Peter was a heart of repentance. Through repentance, we too can be restored and have fellowship with God because Jesus stood righteous as our Heavenly Father's truly obedient Son. Romans 5.18 picks up on this idea that Jesus' righteousness is the means by which unrighteous people like us can be restored in our relationship with God. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the good news of Christianity. Jesus Christ is the long-prophesied suffering servant who died as a righteous man to pay the penalty for your unrighteousness. He was then raised from the dead by God on Easter Sunday, and he reigns even this morning at God's right hand in heaven as the King of Kings. Through faith in Jesus Christ's death for your sins, you can be granted the perfect righteousness of Jesus and be reconciled with the God whom you failed. 
those who trust in Jesus as their Savior then practice repentance, continually turning away from the, their pursuit of things that God doesn't want for them and turning toward Jesus to follow him as their king. If you haven't responded to Jesus with faith and repentance of your own, this morning would be a great time to do so. I also want to share something that God has been teaching me this winter about my relationship with him. So all you good Christian folk out there, listen up. Even the greatest disciples can fail. No one other than Jesus is righteous. Now I know this is something you acknowledged when you first became a Christian. The fact that you needed Jesus' works to be credited to you in order to be able to relate with our holy God. But some of you have fallen into the trap of thinking that your own works as a Christian are what keep God loving you. I recently read a book called Holiness by Grace by Brian Chappell. He seems to call out my own heart when he writes, We rejoice that God made us right with him, or justified us, as the theologians say, apart from any goodness in us. But health and vigor will be added to our spiritual service as we understand that this song applies to us at every stage of our Christian lives. To grasp fully the grace that daily restores our confidence in his love, we must keep our hands empty of any claim that God must bless us on the basis of our goodness. For if he loves us because of what is in our hands, then the day will come when we will believe that his affection has diminished because our works are small, or that his care has vanished because our deeds are wrong. I've been trying to earn God's approval all my Christian life. And I felt like I was always in God's doghouse, sleeping on the couch. It's as if he adopted me by grace as a spiritual infant, but then, as I grew up in the Christian faith, he started letting me know that I needed to start living up to the family name if I wanted his approval. So I keep trying and trying to earn his favor. When I did well, I felt close to God. It was great. But when I sinned, or when I fell short on my devotional life, I felt condemned. Like God wanted me to clean up my mess before coming to him to admit my mistake and to ask for another chance. But Romans 8.1 tells us that, that, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapel writes that it's not our works that move God, but our desperation that we acknowledge as our own. It's the repentant heart, crying out for mercy, that inclines God's heart. Chapel writes, There's a different kind of religion from that of the guilty oppressiveness that motivates so many Christians, admires them in an unrelenting slavery to fear of God's disapproval. Because God accepts us on the basis of his unmerited pardon, rather than on the basis of our earning his affection or compensating for our guilt, we are unable to serve him with an unrestrained, childlike love that is a joyful response to his care. If you're like me, and constantly trying to earn the right to be your own Savior, even as you say that Jesus is your Savior, then I would encourage you to repent of your impossible pursuit and meditate on God's grace, his mercy, and his unconditional love for you. And I think once you've really grasped God's grace, the thing that you'll be most thankful for is the mercy God has shown you in having his son, Jesus, bear the punishment for your sins so that you can come with only a desperate heart and be clothed in the righteous deeds of Jesus himself. And I think you'll savor the fact that in Christ your fellowship with the Father has been restored and continues without any need to fear that his love for you has gone cold. 
I know you've left him and fled at times. We all have. But now let's run back into his loving arms. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ was willing to suffer alone such horrible things so that our sins could be forgiven. We thank you, full. We thank you, Lord, that he has interceded for us and he has put his righteous life within us. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to teach us and nourish us this week. Help us to rest in your grace, to love your mercy, and to know your unconditional love. In your name we pray. Amen.